Hello everybody and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Job. If you have a Bible handy, please open it up to the book of James, chapter 5. And while you are turning there, this is going to be a very special recording because we are reading three straight chapters. Now before somebody hears that and goes, I don't have time for that, this is going to take forever, we're going to read through all three chapters break them down into sections, and go over them somewhat quickly while paying careful attention to the last chapter of Job's final speech. Now, this is important because Job is considered something of a prophet by, the, um, by James, the brother of our Lord. Hear the word of our Lord from James chapter 5, beginning in the seventh verse. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. St. James calls us to remember the prophets, to see them as our example of suffering and patience. And then in the next breath, he brings up Job, as though Job is the prime example of these prophets. Indeed, during our fellowship time last week, we had an Eastern Orthodox believer who says Job is like the proto-confessor. We might add that he is the proto-prophet. He wrote his book. I'm firmly in the camp that believes Job wrote the first book of Holy Scripture. And in it, as we covered last week, he gives us the first instance in all of Scripture, in the first book written in Holy Scripture, saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So as we turn our Bibles to chapter 29 of the book of Job, we look forward to seeing what his summary defense, his final accounting of everything he wants to say to God, what that means for us and how we learn to be steadfast through this example. So let us start reading here all three chapters in one go, and then we will return back to chapter 29. Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. 
The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous, and I made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters, with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me, and waited, and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way, and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Chapter 30 But now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained, to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Through want and hard hunger they gnaw the dry ground by night and waste and desolation. They pick salt wort in the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together, a senseless, nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me, because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on, terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I, I, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I knew that I know that you will bring me to death, into the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruin stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came, and when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. 
Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me. My bones burn with heat. My lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. Chapter 31 I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? If, if I have walked with falsehood and my foot is hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has struck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. And let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait for my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon. And it would burn to the root all my increase. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did he not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exulted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner is not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I stood in great fear of the multitude, and the contempt of families terrified me, so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors, oh, that I had one to hear me! Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me, and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. 
This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. After having addressed his friends, in chapter 27, he says, well, where is God and how on earth am I supposed to talk to him here? And when in 20, chapter 28, he goes into this discord on wisdom, speaking about the topic of wisdom of like, if there's one thing mankind can do, it's search for stuff and find stuff. It's exploring, it's digging, it's excavating, it's swimming until you find something. Birds don't do this. They don't look for this. But where can you find wisdom? And look, I understand it. The last verse of chapter 28 says, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. But now his tone changes. It's now time for him to defend himself, in part against the accusations of his friends, and in part what he believes to be God accusing him of wrong. So he says, Oh, that I were in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, chapter 29, verse 2, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. In this section, Job is remembering his prominence that he once had in his community. He speaks of a time in which people listened to him. Of course, people will always listen to you if you are filthy, stinking rich like Job was. Job, as a Bedouin, was not just a Bedouin. Many of the verses in these three chapters suggest that he had branched out. He also had sharecroppers. He had his own land that his sheep, his goats, his animals could pasture with, and he sharecropped so that poor people could eat and glean from it. Job was a pillar of his community maybe on account of his wealth. But the way he speaks of it, it is not just on account of him being rich or the fact that people with nice clothing get so much honor. He says, the young men saw me and withdrew. The practice of the day being they would go back into the crowd so that the older men could stand up. They'd pull on their canes, they would strengthen their doddering knees, and they would stand up to honor Job as he came in. And he doesn't point to his wealth, though we would expect that to be the case. Instead, he says, verse 12, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. And this is an important thing. Have you ever wondered why Job had ten children? Ten children by one woman is blessed indeed, but the way that Job speaks of it, especially if we turn back to chapter 31, he says in verse 18, from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. To answer the charge of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, when they say, listen, Job, people fell through the cracks, and we know that you didn't just take care of all the poor people. There were those that you turned away. You're a businessman, right? Job points to, hey, I have been like a father to these children that had none. And it suggests to me, at least, that of those ten children that he boasted before they all died, 
at least a few of them were adopted. And back in the day in the ancient Near East, as with ancient Rome, adoption was a big deal. You are saying you are going to take your limited resources in a scarcity economy, as it were, and you are going to invest them in an individual that has no relation to you. You are paying for another human being to be raised up for them to call you father. You are putting them in the inheritance, putting your children's, your real children's inheritance at risk. To adopt somebody is a big deal. When Job says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him, he's telling his friends, in all likelihood, you don't think I was orphan? You don't think I was caring for the poor? Why do you think I had so many servants? Nobody else was going to hire them. I gave them a job. I gave them wages. I gave them a place to live. And as for the orphans, did you not recognize that I weep for my own children that died, even the ones that I took in after they were made orphans? LFAs. I put on righteousness and it clothed me, that my justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. Before Job speaks to God, he is telling these three friends who have been accusing him of something, and the only thing they could come up with was, come on, businessman, come on, big, bad Bedouin. I know that you left some people behind. Job wants to address that. He says, no. I'm holding on to my integrity. I took care of people. You would think a rich guy wouldn't have to go be a seeing eye dog for the local blind man, but there I was leading him by the hand. You would think somebody that couldn't move would have a servant, or I would send out maybe a slave, and that would count as charity, but I picked them up myself. And in chapter 30, he says, okay, yes. There are some people that got left behind, that fell through the cracks. Did you know that there was a reason for that, Bildad? Now they laugh at me, verse 1 of chapter 30. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? A few verses later, I have become their song. Verse 9, I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. Job says, yes, there were people that I didn't exactly help. Guess what? These were men of low moral stock. You know how? Because everybody else has shut up and avoids me, and these are the ones that have stuck around to laugh at me. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Oh, look at poor stupid Job. He didn't want to give me a job just because I was caught stealing. Oh, he didn't want to help me out because I was a cattle thief or he saw me beating my child in public? All right, well, now it's your turn, pal. See how you like it. There are people mocking Job. And he says, those are the guys that fell through the cracks, Eliphaz. Was I a bad person for not exactly helping them in the midst of their sin? Eliphaz? He explains himself. He defends himself. Saying, I was aware of this. Now I've become their song. I'm a byword to them. And he says in verse 11, It is because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. 
There has been an enabling for these people because I am crushed. And now Job transitions to speaking directly to God. Verse 20, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. God, you know this. You've seen all of this. If I've really done something bad, could you tell me I've been asking for your help to speak to me? What are the charges? There must have been a mistake. Or if there wasn't, and if I really am guilty, bring my attention to it. Job says to God, I need your help understanding this. He has not asked God for deliverance from his sore circumstances. He has asked, he has asked God for help in terms of understanding. Now for us, that is a part of steadfastness. Part of steadfastness is saying, I'm not letting go until I get an answer from God. There is nothing sinful nor morally wrong with saying that. Job is correct to do so. But we might notice that there is a glaring lack of, I am yours, save me. There's a lot of, I wish I was dead, in Job's words. There's a lot of, I don't know why this is happening, but God has decided he's my enemy and I demand some sort of correction be made in the divine record. But there is not, I am poor, needy, and miserable. I am broken. Would you save me, God? And we almost wonder whether Job notices this. If he's starting to notice this in his own language. He's rising himself up. His attitude gets a little bit more manic as he repeats if, if, if in chapter 31. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? I don't look at that nasty stuff online. I don't look at the, the women out there, whether they're nice, pure virgins that belong to a fiancé or whether they're a prostitute out there advertising herself. That's not me. I've made a covenant with my eyes. I flowed my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high. I would be damned if I was truly to impenitently hold on to such lusts. Besides, that's, that's not for me. Calamity is for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity. God, are you seeing me? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? God, this isn't supposed to happen to me. And he goes into the ifs. If I have walked with falsehood, if my step is turned aside from the way, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired, if, 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 and he calls upon conditional curses to happen to him, if indeed he's done these things. And the question for us is, did he really do any of them? The answer is no. Job holds on to his integrity, and God underlines that in the first chapter, saying that Job was blameless, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. Job knows that he is the real deal, so every few verses, if you're reading from the ESV, you see these brackets on them. They're kind of like asides. He can't help himself. 
In the midst of his pronouncements, in the midst of this manic feeling he has, he has to make a statement. Let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. Verse 4, when he says, uh, have you eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless not eaten it? If that's really happened, verse 18, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as a father and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. It points to his dead kids. He says, if all of this is the case, humiliate me further. If I did this, make it worse, God. I'm still alive. I can see worse things happening to me right now. So, by all means, if I went out with a, some other woman, if I sunk it into strange flesh, verse 9, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. Of course, that's euphemistic sexual language being employed here. Job's point being, if that's me, if I'm some adulterer, she belongs with another guy, not with a, a wicked, sad sack like me. Don't give her to somebody else, God. Take away my wife. Truly, if we were a little bit more humorous, we might say, given his wife's behavior, maybe his uh, example here was not uh, something he would necessarily oppose. But he still loves her with all of his heart. So he says, if I cheated on her, if I was sticking around, waiting in the back door to sneak into my neighbor's house to sleep with his wife, then give my wife to somebody else. Fine. Make it worse. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? Rhetorical question. The answer is I will accept whatever he wants to do to me even worse. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, verse 21, because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. Bring it on. Bring it on. Do you understand this attitude that Job the prophet says? He is so confident in his conduct. He is so confident in this moment and how he has lived, knowing that he was blameless. That he says, you can tear me apart by wild beasts or rip me apart with ropes. I, I don't care. However you want to do it. Rip the shoulder right out. Rip the arm out of the socket. Take the shoulder blade off. Even worse than your arm being torn out of its socket. Like a lion chewing off your entire arm going straight up to the spinal column. Why? Verse 23 is key for us to understand why he's willing to call such conditional curses upon himself. Verse 23, for I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. And I would like to humbly submit that this is one of Job's biggest mistakes. He did all of these righteous things, which indeed are good things. And this is Job who had saving faith, yes, but his conduct and his good works were motivated by fear of God. Terror of calamity rather than love of God for God's own sake and love of neighbor for own, his own sake. Job is falling into a trap that we will get into when God speaks in this book, where we treat God as an object, as a threat, 
as a cosmic vending machine, input righteous deeds, output blessing. As a being that you put into a test tube near a Bunsen burner, so you analyze this deity, you look in every single source you can to say, ah yes, this is my theology. Now this god that I worship is totally predictable. The god of the theologians, who say that they just know God so well, you see. Job begins to fall into this trap. Again, far be it from me to criticize the man. Job is clearly far more righteous than I am. But his motivation for doing right was not according to the third use of the law. It's a crucial and critical mistake that believers make every single day. Why do we do good works? Why do we engage in devotion? Why do we pray? It should be because we love the God that created us. Because we are thankful to the Redeemer that saved us. Christians do not do good works in order to be Christians. They do it because they are Christians. As many a pastor has said, I will fully endorse that motto. We do good because our Lord has saved us. And here Job says, and he admits, all this time I'm doing it because I'm afraid that this would happen. And here it is. It's happened. Now truly, Job did have saving faith. But even somebody with saving faith is going to fall into traps in our flesh where we're motivated by fleshly things like terror or a phobia of God rather than love. It is good to fear God, absolutely, much as a child rightly fears his father's discipline. But to fear God as an object, as a threat, a divine it that hides in your closet waiting for you to sin so he can squish you, that is not the proper fear of God. That's treating God as a thing, not personally. So Job continues on. He let that slip, that little admission in verse 23, that his motivations, maybe they weren't the best for a believer, even when it comes to good works. Hebrews 11.6 says, if you want to please God, you need to have faith in him. It is a matter of trusting in him and seeing that he rewards you. It's a positive thing that motivates us, not just fear. But in verse 35, he said, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. I've laid it all out. I've laid out any mistakes I've made, I've admitted that I've sinned a few chapters back. I, and look, even for the times where I did something that looks bad, I have an explanation for it. I know that those other guys were rotten to their core, and I'm not going to put that on my kids. I'm not going to put that on my servants. But if I've done anything that you could accuse me of, all the way up to worshiping gold, worshiping the stars or the moon or the sun or even myself the expression my mouth kissing my hand uh, that is a, an expression of egotism when accusing somebody if i've done all of this yes squish me worse but i want an answer i've done everything right i want an answer as to why this is happening show me the indictment have you been there? 
Christ speaks of the brother to the prodigal son who did everything right. And he doesn't seem to get anything good in his life while his brother gets parties thrown for him, being reinstated into the family. Job has the opposite. He did everything right, and now he's being punished as though he did everything wrong. He wants an answer. This is not an ungodly thing, beloved. We need to understand this. There are so many that would criticize Job's insistence on an answer. But again and again, I will ask you, would you rather Job have pretended he sinned and lied? Would you rather he have borne false witness and thus actually sinned? Would you rather him have hung up the hat of faith on its hook and just abandoned God with moral disgust? No, none of these are good. And even a form of pious quietism would not be righteous to do. If he merely sat there and accepted it and never even had this conversation with his friends and pretended it didn't happen, well then he's sinning against himself. No man has ever hated his own flesh and when we have our hearts suffering from the inside out, it is not righteous to say, well okay, I'm just going to suffer then and pretend that I'm not. That's not an honest way to live. It's not genuine, and that is, there's no faith there. There's just resignation. Job does the right thing in the midst of his suffering. He does the steadfast thing and says, answer me. I'm not letting go until you give me an answer. When we go through times of suffering in our lives, we need to have that same attitude. I'm sticking with you because I need you, and I, you are the only one that can make sense of this. And truly, we should watch our words, and if God gives us an answer we don't like, we need to accept that and move forward with that in mind. But let us be like Job and say, answer me. Let the Almighty answer me. I would carry it on my shoulder. I'd bind it on me as a crown. Even if I've sinned and I didn't notice it, at least I heard from God, and this makes sense now. So the chapter ends with, the words of Job are ended. And I encourage people to reread the book of Job once we're done with this whole series. To look at all of the words of Job. Yes, he does speak again in this book, particularly responding to God when God decides to speak to him. But his case is ended. His expression, his motivations, everything has been laid out. His chips are on the table. He's ready to start listening for what God shall say. And then a goofy goober shows up uh, named Elihu. And we will begin going over his words next week. Starting to anyway. I'm going to prefer to keep that short, lest I sin by having too much disdain for the man. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.